We're coming to the end of our series on the Gospel of John. And some of you are saying, wow, can't come quick enough. We've been here a long time, and we have been since, since Advent. We've been studying the Gospel of John. Others of you, if you're anything like me, are saying it's come to an end too quickly. And uh, I could spend a lot more time in the Gospel of John. But we have done this in segments. And, uh, and since Easter, we've been in this last section that we're calling Alive, Messiah Alive. And we've been looking specifically at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And some of you are saying, who knew there were so many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus? But the Gospel of John in particular, John the writer, pays careful attention and gives special prominence to these uh, appearances. By no means are they a PS, an afterthought, just kind of a tag on to the end to complete the story. By all means, these are a part of the gospel that John is writing and the message that he has to communicate about Jesus. Again, he's wanting to give some evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrection. He wants to say that this is, was not some sort of apparition that appeared to the disciples. This was not some sort of figment of their imagination. It was not like a warm feeling or a warm fuzzy that the disciples all kind of felt together and was like, yeah, Jesus is with us. In fact, there's a song that we sing and, and the lyrics go like this. You ask me how, he know, how I know he lives. What's the next line? He lives within my heart. We don't sing that song very often anymore, obviously. But you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Well, if you would have said that to the disciples, and if you would have asked them that question, how do you know he lives? They would not have said, because he lives within my heart. They would have said, because I saw him. I know he lives because I saw him. Because I touched him. I put my eyes on his nail-pierced hands and on his uh, spear-pierced side. I saw him. It's not a warm fuzzy It's not just a figment of our imagination. It's not some collective psychological groupthink that some people have accused the disciples of going through. No, they believe that he was risen because they saw him. And John wants us to be sure and understand that this is a fact, my friends. Mary saw him outside the tomb. She became the apostle to the apostles. The ten disciples saw him within the locked room where he came and stood among them. Thomas joined them the next Sunday and he showed himself to them as well. Uh, Along with giving some evidence of the resurrection, though, John also wants to give the church and the future church, us, and even those beyond us in these post-resurrection appearances, he wants us to give us some idea as to how Jesus will continue to relate to his people. If he related to these folks like this after he was raised, then he will relate to his future church through the presence of his Holy Spirit in these same ways, or at least in these similar ways. We, give, we have an idea, we have an understanding, we have a, a game plan, so to speak, of how we can expect Jesus to interact with us even today because of how he interacted with his people in these moments following uh, his resurrection. And so we're reminded, and let's pull all the pieces together because we just, seriously, next week's going to be the last Sunday, so I'm starting to wrap things up here a little bit. But let, let's be reminded that, that it wasn't, only his teachings or his miracles. It wasn't only his interactions with the people that we've read about all the way throughout the Gospel of John. It wasn't even only his 
crucifixion and then even his resurrection, but it was also his post-resurrection appearances that John was speaking about when he wrote this verse, John 20, 31. Do we have it up there? John 20, 31. Um, sorry, 31. It's, it's this one, and it says, I write these things to you so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. So all these things that John has written, including these post-resurrection appearances, were written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So today we're going to look at one last post-resurrection appearance, the beginning of one, and we'll finish it next week, this one uh, last post-resurrection appearance in John 21. Now, a lot of scholars think that John 21 is what is known as an epilogue, like the, the chapter after the last chapter. And so many think that the, the appearance to Thomas was like the the, the, the climax, it was the, it was the main deal. And then that declaration, I write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah was the finishing, the original finishing point. And then later, John or some followers of John came along and said, you know, there's, there's one more story. And some of you know what an epilogue is. Some of you who read literature, an epilogue is, is that last chapter after the last chapter, really, that sort of explains things a little bit. It it sets the stage for maybe a sequel in, in our day. But in this day, and it was maybe doing some of that for sure, setting the stage for what would come next in the mission of Jesus and the mission of the church for sure. Sometimes it wraps up loose ends as to what is going on with certain characters. And it gives a, a conclusion, in a sense, to the words that we've written or that we've read before. So John 21 is in a very real sense what we might think of as an epilogue. So we want to read it together. Jesus isn't appearing now to his disciples on a Sunday in a solemn assembly behind locked doors. As much as I like to um, celebrate the fact that Jesus likes to meet with his disciples in solemn assemblies, not necessarily behind closed doors, but in doors like this, Jesus meets with his people just like this. But we hear in this story he meets with some of his disciples who have left the locked doors. And they have gone fishing, getting outside, getting some fresh air, getting back to what they knew, maybe even getting on with life. So John 21, let's stand together, can we? John 21, 1 to 14. At the end, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can say thanks be to God. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. <laughs> Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. Look how Thomas has made his way up the list. You like that? Nicely done, Thomas. Nathaniel from Canaan. We haven't heard about him since chapter 1, but he's back. The sons of Zebedee and two other disciples. Seven, I believe, are mentioned there in total. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach. But the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No. Maybe it sounded more like this. No, they replied. 
Then he said, throw out your net on the right hand of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. He's always getting one up on Peter. You notice that? It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed for shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. And this was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. One of my favorite things to do with people when we talk about talents and strengths, which we try to do around here from time to time, we like to think about what's right with us as opposed to what's wrong with us. And uh, so we talk about talents and strengths. And one of my favorite things to do, and you've probably heard me ask this question, some of you who've been with me in those contexts, is I like to ask people about a recent success. Just share with us a recent success. And uh, that's always a fun exercise because typically most human people can come up with several recent failures but they have a hard time coming up with a recent success. And so sometimes we have to just go to things like, well, I got out of bed this morning and I'm here. Okay, it counts. All right, yes. And we we think about these things. Um, Sometimes, again, successes are hard to identify. Maybe even if I were to ask that question right now, you'd be like, "Uh, yeah. But if I were to say, name a failure, a recent failure, (laughs) ah, ha, ha. Tip of my tongue. I got several of those that began, and we can work backwards from this morning. Maybe not for all of us, but for many of us, it's just harder to see the good things when there are obviously bad things that are happening all around us. Another example that we use in talking about strengths and talents is imagine that your child brings home a report card, and it has an A and two Bs, a C, a D, and an F. And what's the first letter that you look at? It's the F. I mean, if that's your child, maybe not everybody's like this. But if that's your child, most of us are like, what's the deal with the F? What's what's going on? And and we miss completely the A and the two Bs. And we focus in on the F and then the D. What is this all about? And, And we're focusing on failure. We're focusing, we're good at focusing on failure. We train our kids to do this by having them play baseball as well. Because baseball is a, it's known as the sport of failure. I mean, they, they, get, they get a hit uh, every three at-bats, and we focus on the two times that they got out, right? Whereas, in reality, if they get one hit every three times they come to bat, they're world-class. They're world-class. The greatest batters in baseball get out seven times out of ten. It's a game of failure. You can make 20 straight great plays in the field, but you make one error that costs your team the game, you're a failure. And, and this is what we're teaching our kids by playing baseball. It's wonderful. Uh, well, it seems by, 
It seems by all accounts that the disciples had committed an epic fail at this uh, point in the story. Uh, they've, they're beginning the chapter by deciding to go fishing. Now, some fishermen in the room are like, what are you talking about? Fishing is never failure. Are there any fishermen in the room? Yeah. Fishing is never a failure, James. Take that back. Any day, fishing is a great day. And I, you know, I've been fishing a little bit, and I have to somewhat agree with that. I don't think it's the fishing necessarily that's the trouble. Perhaps you might say they just needed to clear their heads. They needed to get out. They needed to change the scenery. They needed to kind of shake things up a little bit. Maybe they could only think straight when they were out in their boats, and this was the time that they needed to get out there and try to consider all that had been going on and, and just and kind of focus a little bit. Other pragmatists in the room would just simply say, well, they were fishing because they had to earn a living. They'd been walking around with Jesus for a couple of years here now or more, and uh, their families were probably like, hello, what about us? And they're like, well, maybe we need to go back to, to earning a living for our families, and so let's go out and go fishing. Others might just simply say they were hungry and they needed something to eat. This is what they knew to do, go fishing. But for a lot of reasons, at least a few, others have noticed that this was perhaps a, a great failure as they went to fish. For one, it, it's, we have a sense that it's a failure because it's, it's Peter's idea. And I don't mean to be harsh on Peter, I really don't, but most of his ideas thus far in the Gospel of John have not worked out well. And so it should have come as, you know, a, a clue to the other disciples. When Peter said, I'm going fishing, they should have said, not us, not with you. We're not doing what your idea is. Whatever it is, we're not doing that. But instead, they went along with him, at least six others. It was Peter's idea. Not, I mean, maybe should have stayed away from that one. It also seems like a failure because these were the same guys who just a few days ago had been breathed on by Jesus. They had been commissioned for world mission. They had been sent out to do what he had been sent to do by the Father. They had been told to go and forgive. And if they forgave, people were forgiven. If they didn't, then people weren't forgiven. To set this atmosphere of forgiveness and transformation and to go into the world and to, to, to make disciples of all people. And instead, they go fishing. If anything, this was a detour from the original plan that Jesus had in mind for them. Finally, we find this trip, though, to be a failure because of its initial results. I mean, maybe it was like, it's okay, we're going fishing, it's all right. I know we're supposed to be changing the world, but we're going fishing, but it's all right. But then they fish all night long, and it wasn't like these were rookies. Maybe they were out of practice. But they weren't rookies. They knew where the fish were. They knew how to cast a net. They knew how to set the bait. They knew where the, the, the boats should be in the lake. They knew how to do this, and yet they fished all night long, and they didn't just catch a few. They caught nothing. Nothing. And, and John uses, interestingly, he uses the same word here when he speaks, when, they, when he talks about them saying that they caught nothing. It's the same word that he used back in John 15, 5, when Jesus told the disciples that apart from him, they could do nothing. So perhaps at one more level, this is a failure because the disciples have gone 
on and decided to do something, whatever it was, without Jesus involved. Perhaps that's the greatest failure of all. Epic fail. We know the feeling. But what we also have here is, in the midst of this failure, the place where Jesus shows up. We've seen with Mary that Jesus shows up to lonely people. We've seen with the disciples behind locked doors that Jesus shows up to fearful people. We've seen with Thomas that Jesus shows up to doubting people. And now with these disciples in the boat, we see that Jesus shows up to failing people. Does anybody want to say amen? Jesus shows up to failing people. I mean... It was four strikes. It wasn't even three. Four strikes for these guys. And still here's Jesus showing up. And now we begin to see that failure, failure too, is a wonderful soil for God's grace to grow. And this is a place, a, a people to whom Jesus comes quickly. Stands on the beach ministers to them. Into their failure, Jesus really does a a couple of things, or a few things. We're going to talk about two here this morning. He's discipling his disciples to the very end. Catch this. I mean, it's like, I got a few more hours, a few more days with you guys, and I'm going to squeeze everything I can out of it. I'm going to disciple you to the very end. The moment I leave this place, I'm going to be teaching you. This was a teachable moment, and I believe that not only did he want to disciple his disciples through these moments, but he wants to disciple us. This is a teachable moment for us. And so as we watch what Jesus did for these disciples in these moments, we need to also watch for how Jesus might want to continue to disciple us right now. Remember, we're learning from what he did with the people post-resurrection about what he wants to do with us post-resurrection. So we're learning about how he wants to disciple us. We're also learning about how we as a church can disciple one another because we are the hands and feet in a very beautiful way of Jesus in this world. So we're learning about how G- from Jesus how he discipled about how we can disciple one another, about how we can be discipled by looking at these disciples. Is that enough discipleship for you? This was a disciple, a teachable moment. So he does two things for them. First of all, he speaks to them. He, he, he speaks. He speaks the word, if we can go ahead and call it that. The word, this is literally the word of God. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples the word. The word of the Lord. And it's a word of encouragement, first of all. Although when you've been fishing all night long and you haven't caught a single thing and somebody asks, how you doing? You usually don't receive that as encouragement. You usually just, you know, they didn't recognize Jesus. I'm just glad they didn't tell him to shut up and go away. You know, that probably would have been my reaction. Just nothing and keep it to yourself. Get out of here. So, but here's Jesus speaking, words of encouragement, words of affirmation, trying to speak into these disciples who are downhearted, discouraged. I mean, they were tired, they were cold, they were hungry, they were frustrated, they were failing, and Jesus speaks into their lives. Fellows, have you caught any fish? Or in our vernacular, fellows, guys, how you doing? And here's Jesus, though, again, they didn't recognize him building relationship, reaching out, connecting with these men, extending himself to them, showing some sort of empathy. The minimum lesson that we might 
take from this is that Jesus is interested in us, in our failure, that he comes to us, that he seeks to build relationship, to, to, to foster humanity, to, to reach into our lives, to care about the very lowest of our lows, and to enter into conversation with us. And that we might follow him in that. That as we look around and as we interact and as we know and discover the failures of one another, that we're not pulling back from that or shying away from that. We're not like, look at those people, their failures, just stay away from them. But we're moving towards people and we're hoping that people will move toward us. Are we not? And our failures... We feel so alone, like we've let everybody down, like we're not deserving of anybody's attention, that we don't really count, that perhaps people should stay away, and yet in our hearts we long for Jesus to reach for us and for his people to do the same, discipling us, coming to us in the midst of our failure with words of encouragement. Jesus Continues with words of guidance. Throw your net out on the right side of the boat. Now again, if I'm these disciples, I'm like, who are you, buddy? What do you know about anything? But here's Jesus. And, and, and we might summarize what he said to them with these words. I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Would you be willing to consider it? As Jesus discipled his disciples in, that, in those moments, I've got something for you to think about and for us to hear that today. In the midst of our failure, in the midst of our, of our, of our life, in the midst of our journey of faith, when we keep butting up against something that isn't working, when we keep kind of struggling and, and not succeeding, are we willing to allow Jesus to speak into our lives with that simple phrase, hey, I've got another idea. We talked about it a little bit in the parenting class this morning, but this quote that I'll probably butcher so you can help me, but it's this quote that talks about your, your systems are perfectly designed to achieve your current results. I think I got it right. Your systems are perfectly designed to achieve your current results. And so, in other words, what you're getting as a result of your life is, is there because of the systems that you have put into place. And so this system, what we're doing is resulting in this, in this result, is, is, is coming together in this result. And, and their result is no fish and failure. And Jesus wants to say, I have an idea that we can get to back here in the system. And maybe some of us here this morning, whether it be in parenting or whether it be in our work or whether it be in our, our daily walk with Jesus, whatever it might be, the area that we're not getting the results that we might want. It's a perfect opportunity for us to say, Jesus, you got any ideas? Because I'm ready to listen. I'm ready for a change of pace. And some of us just need to hear some new ideas from Jesus. Are we alert as one commentator said it, to Jesus' starboard suggestions. He gives him words of invitation, and I love this. Later on, he says to, to Peter and to the disciples, after he's already prepared the meal for them, he says these words, bring some of the fish you've caught. And, and what's interesting is that he already had fish on the grill. Did you notice that? But he says to them, go ahead, bring what you've got 
as well. And, and in his discipling of his disciples, what he's saying to them is, I'd like to use what you have also. I'd like to use what you have. I'd like to incorporate what you have into this wonderful meal and, and use it for my glory as well. Can we hear him as he's discipling us? That he is interested in using us and what we have for his glory and for his ends. He gives credit to his disciples for the catch. And he wants to use for his meal both what they have caught and what he had already planned. He wants to use his disciples in shaping us and training us. Even in our failures, he wants to say to us, you've got something to offer. You've got something beautiful that I can use. I love to stand before the guys at the rescue mission where I get to teach a Bible study and just look out at them. Some of these guys that just come out of jail or one guy this week just said, I've been praying for God to deliver me from meth addiction for eight years. Three times a day for eight years. And just reminded me of just the, the sense of frustration and failure. And to look at these guys and just say, God has something beautiful in mind for you. And, and I hear the struggle. I don't understand that struggle, but I hear the struggle. But I want to continue to proclaim and declare to you that you have something in you that God wants to peel the onion back and find what is in there and use it for his glory. And can we each believe that, that even in, with our past, yes, with your past, I don't know what it is, but with your past, good or bad, God looks at you and says, you've got something that I want to add to the mix. You've got something that I can use. I've got an incredible feast prepared, but I want to take what you have and add it in. Isn't that great? He doesn't really need you. <laughs> I mean, I, I said that we're the hands and the feet and all that good stuff. But he could figure it out. He's God. He could get other hands and feet. He doesn't really. And so this is grace. We don't deserve it. But he says, I want to use it to come and be a part of this feast that I'm preparing. So he speaks the word to his disciples. Then he does another thing. He serves them. He serves them with his hands. He serves them with hands of compassion. He serves them with hands of compassion. Just imagine the scene. Peter, well, he's put his tunic back on and I don't know how big or heavy those things were but it seems like that would have slowed him down in the swimming process and wading through the water but he jumps into the water and he's just slogging through and I got to get to Jesus because John the loved, loved disciple said it was but he recognized him but I'm going to get there first he beat me to the tomb but I'm going to beat him to the beach I mean it was just like I'm going to get there so he swims hard and he gets there and he gets up on the shore and what's the first thing he sees Jesus and then a charcoal fire that Jesus has evidently built for his disciples. <laughs> Just picture that scene. Jesus, before he even called out to them, let me build this fire first. Let me get the fish grilling. Let me get the bread cooking. Here's, here's Jesus, and Peter gets up there, and he sees Jesus, and he's, yes, and then he sees this fire. And, and, and I don't know if Peter thought about this or not, but perhaps this denying Peter, who around a charcoal fire on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, around a very similar charcoal fire, perhaps, had denied that he even knew Jesus. Here's Jesus, who's built a replica 
Here's another charcoal fire, Peter. And it's time for us to start again. I'm building this fire to cook bread, bake bread, and to cook, grill fish. But I'm also building this fire because I love you, Peter. And I want to maybe tangibly and very vividly remind you that that, that old charcoal fire is be, behind you. This is a new charcoal fire. This is a new day. <clears throat> and I'm, I, I want to act with great compassion towards you. Jesus serving us with compassion. Again, in whatever situation our past might hold, he's bringing us to a new place. Instead of denial, now it's reconciliation. Instead of loss, now it's, it's found. Instead of devastation, now it's restoration and redemption. This is what Jesus, how Jesus wants to serve us. He wants to serve us with hands of provision. The bread and the fish are baking and grilling. He's prepared the meal. Jesus wants to eat with his disciples. And let's just be honest about this because, I mean, this still goes on today. I I just think that Jesus wants to eat with his disciples because he knows that something happens when people eat together. Let's, there's a guy that, used to say, you know, let's, let's go eat about it. Instead of, if there's a, something to think about or something to really consider, something that we wanted to do, something we wanted to plan, let's go eat about it. And that just meant, let's go and sit down at a meal and break bread together and, and, and share in this communion that, that only happens when people eat. Now, I don't understand it, necessarily. But I believe it. We gathered with Aaron last night. We were with the guy and several men. And we were celebrating his upcoming marriage and, and just having a meal together. And we sat around those tables and we stuffed our faces with good burgers and other wonderful things. And, and beyond just getting a stomach ache, we, we shared tremendous fellowship. We bonded in, in new ways. And I think Jesus knew that in his provision of food, he was also providing great communion and fellowship. Um, we have this idea that uh, has um, been birthed in our congregation from one of our board members. We haven't really kicked it off yet, but this is the official unveiling of it. We have First Wednesday Fasting, right? You're all familiar with that. That's starting this Wednesday. Um, Feel free not only to be familiar with it, but to come and participate in it. It's always a standing invitation. But the idea is not only to have the First Wednesdays Fasting, but to have First Sundays Feasting. Not bad. So on the first Sunday of every month, which would be today, and if you can't make it happen today, then we can start next month, but which would be today, we want to set aside an afternoon where you would invite somebody from the church to go out to lunch with you or to come over to your house for lunch to share a meal together. That just as we would fast and make room for Jesus in our fasting, that we would feast together as well and make room for Jesus in our Feasting. Now, it doesn't have to be a literal feast. It can be a turkey sandwich. But just to share that kind of time together, Jesus knew something about it, obviously, and we should as well. He serves them with hands of provision. He serves them with hands of relationship. His discipleship is very spiritual and miraculous, but it's also very earthy and it's very human. This is how Jesus comes to the world even today, through the church and through those who imitate him practically, 
in the everyday lives in the world and with their friends. One commentator said this. Some have suggested that a glance at all four of the Gospels will suggest to you that Jesus' number one means of mission and discipleship in the world was having meals with people. Think about it. Over and over. That's what he's doing. Well, just two, two thoughts to close. For centuries now, the church has been following Jesus' pattern that he established in these few verses that we read. For centuries, the church has been preaching the word and serving God's people from his table. And we, we went to a service, several liturg- more liturgical churches will refer to their service as one of word and table. And, and the church for centuries now has followed this pattern of serving, of speaking the word of God to God's people and serving the table of the Lord to God's people. And in so doing, shaping and discipling God's people. We want to continue to be about that. And it's one of the reasons why not only we're preaching the word during this Easter season, but we're serving the Lord's Supper from Sunday to Sunday as well. And my hope and my belief is that when you hear the word, that then receiving the Lord's Supper is a means not only of, like, crossing the T and dotting the I and, you know, moving on with the day, but it's a means of responding, of saying thanks for what we've received or what we've heard in the word. Now, so today, as we receive communion, I want you to think about two things. As you've heard the word and as you prepare to dine at the Lord's table, I want you to think about two things, two marks of a disciple that come straight from this passage that we all can lean into today. Marks of a disciple, first of all, that these disciples obeyed Jesus. One, one writer referred to it as the, as, the mirac- as the miracle of obedience. The miracle of obedience, that Catching the fish wasn't really the miracle here. Picking the net up and moving it to the other side was really the miracle. (laughs) That they listened and they obeyed to what Jesus had said to them. It's not an easy thing to do. But this obedience led to an abundant catch. Jesus had told his disciples in other gospels that I will make you fishers of people Now these fish that they've caught are meant to represent these people whom the disciples will catch when they're simply obeying God's clear commands, even out of their failure, even out of their lack, now moving in obedience. It's always a good day to obey the Lord. It's always a good moment to obey the Lord. And then the last one that I'd want us to consider as we come to the table today is, is Peter, the, the guy that I've already thrown under the bus a little bit this morning. And when he realizes it's Jesus, and then when Jesus tells him to go get his fish, you just notice the way he acts. He, he doesn't, doesn't hem and haw. When, when John says, that's Jesus, he says, I'm going. I want Jesus. And when Jesus says, go get your fish, I want to use what you have. 
Peter goes and gets him. He's, he's made the rest of the disciples bring all the fish in from a mile out. But he's willing to go and drag the whole net of 153 fish up from the shore, up from the water onto the shore. He's willing to do it. He just, he just wants more of Jesus, and he just wants to be available to what Jesus asks him to do. When Jesus says to you, hey, I, I need what you have in your neighborhood, in your family, in your local church for the mission and the ministry that we desire to carry out here. God says, I need what you have. Would we be people who would say, I'm in, I'm on it. You need me to speak to that person, I'll do it. You need me to go to that place, I'll do it. <laughs> you need me to go, I'm going. You have, I have something that you need, Jesus. I'm going to do it. It's time, I think this passage is telling us to get serious about discipleship. If you're a nominal believer here today, and that essentially means you're a believer in name only, then it's, it's really, this passage is inviting you to a, a new level of discipleship. I saw a quote, a, a statistic last night that this tri-county area that we live in is 43% unchurched. 43% unchurched. It does, doesn't, don't attend church with any regularity. This community that we live in needs people who are going to be more than name-only Christians. We need to be disciples. We need to get serious about discipleship. Jesus is showing us how much he is invested in our discipleship and inviting us to be just as invested and to not only be invested in our own, but to be invested in the discipleship of others. Let's pray together. God, so much to think about. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to invite our worship team and our servers to just come right here. I'll serve you first. Thank you, Jesus for the way that you reach to the disciples in the midst of their failure. Thank you for the way that you reach to us right where we are today. Thank you, Jesus, that you care so much about our discipleship. Thank you that just as you invested in your disciples on earth to the very end, squeezing every, every impact out of every moment that you had with them, so you too desire to form us and shape us and pour into us. Thank you that you're speaking your word to us, Jesus. Thank you that you're serving us even now. Thank you that we, as we receive and as we ponder what it means to be the disciples that you're inviting us to be, can also be empowered by your Holy Spirit. That you not only call us, but you equip us and you enable us as we live by your grace and by your strength to be your disciples in the world. So as we've heard the word, now we come to the table and we do so with thanksgiving in our hearts, with desire to know more of you, with a desire to be known to you more and to offer all that we have to you. Take us and use us and may you be honored and glorified. Thank you, Jesus that on that night that you were betrayed, you met with your disciples and you took, first of all, the bread and you broke it, Lord, and you passed it to them. You said, this is my body broken for you.
partake of it and eat. And each time you do, remember him. And then you took the cup. You blessed it and you passed it. And you said, this is the cup of salvation, symbol of my blood shed for you for the salvation of your sins. Take of it and drink. And each time you do, remember me. And so again today, you invite us to eat and to drink with thanksgiving and with joy and with expectation. And we do so now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll serve our worship team and servers first and then invite you to come through two lines to receive the bread and the juice. You can kneel or return to your seats and eat and drink. We celebrate an open table here at Coast Community. You're all welcome if you're seeking Christ today. You're all welcome to come and to eat and to drink. God bless you.